Welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. I'm Tyler Green. This week, William H. Johnson. My first guest is Virginia Mecklenburg, the curator of Fighters for Freedom, William H. Johnson Picturing Justice. It's at the Gibbs Museum of Art in Charleston, South Carolina through August 7th. The exhibition features a series of paintings Johnson made in the mid-1940s. It shows mostly black activists, scientists, and educators, and spotlights their impacts on their communities and on the American nation. Johnson's subjects include Crispus Attucks, Harriet Tubman, Marian Anderson, and John Brown. The series also includes pictures of the international heads of state who brought an end to World War II. The show was organized from the collection of the Smithsonian American Art Museum. Mecklenburg is a senior curator at SAM. The exhibition will travel to SAM in 2023-24, and a significant national tour is in development. On the second segment, artist Elizabeth Alexander joins me on the occasion of Reckoning and Resilience North Carolina Art Now at the Nasher Museum of Art at Duke University. If you listen to the show on Spotify, please remember that Spotify now allows you to give us a five-star rating. If you give us, say, four stars, that means you really don't like the show very much. Maximum rating means maximum new listeners. Help share the show. Thanks. Virginia Mecklenburg, after the break. Support for The Man Podcast comes from the Pulitzer Arts Foundation, a museum in St. Louis that believes in the power of dynamic experiences with art. This spring, the Pulitzer presents Assembly Required, an exhibition featuring nine artists whose work invites your active participation. Engage with work by Francis Elise, Rashid Arin, Saya Armajani, Tanya Bruguera and Instar, Ligia Clark, Elio Oidesica, Yoko Ono, Ligia Pape, and Franz Erhard Walter. Created between the 1950s and the present, the artworks respond to distinct social and political moments, from unrest in the United States during the Vietnam War to Peru's military dictatorship. The artists offer unique perspectives on social change, addressing the need for optimism and hope in the face of global tensions. The exhibition poses questions about how art allows us to imagine new ways of being in the world. Assembly Required opens March 4th and is on view through July 31st, 2022. For more information, visit pulitzerarts.org. Now on view at the Hammer Museum in Los Angeles, Ulysses Jenkins Without Your Interpretation. This major retrospective of the groundbreaking Los Angeles artist encompasses video works, performances, and archival ephemera that highlight the scope of Jenkins' 50-year practice. A pivotal influence on contemporary art since emerging in the late 1970s, Jenkins has constructed an other history that interrogates race and gender as they relate to ritual, history, and state power. Ulysses Jenkins is on view at the Hammer Museum February 6th through May 15th. Details at hammer.ucla.edu. The Mississippi Museum of Art is pleased to be the first to present A Movement in Every Direction, Legacies of the Great Migration. This exhibition asks 12 contemporary artists to trace their personal stories through the Great Migration and explore their family connections to the South. Co-organized with the Baltimore Museum of Art, the exhibition will unveil newly commissioned works across media. A Movement in Every Direction, Legacies of the Great Migration, opens at the Mississippi Museum of Art in Jackson on April 9th. Learn more at msmuseumart.org. And we're back. Virginia Mecklenburg, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Thanks so much, Tyler. It's great to be with you. 
William H. Johnson is a significant American modernist who is known more narrowly than he might be, perhaps, because of circumstances totally beyond his control. And that is that a lot of his work is pretty narrowly concentrated in a small handful of institutions. So the Smithsonian American Art Museum, for instance, has about a thousand works. And Sam has done lots of work around Johnson over the years, launched a retrospective just after his death in 1971, has circulated exhibitions in 1991 and 2006, and now, of course. But his work just can't generally be found at your local art museum as routinely as his accomplishment might otherwise allow. So let's start with a bit of biography. Where did Johnson grow up and how did he become a painter? Well, he started off in Florence, South Carolina. As a young man, he was encouraged actually to make art by some teachers and you know friends of the family. And so when he was in his late teens, he took them all seriously and headed for New York. He was determined to become a famous artist, I think even from the time he was a kid. So we went and worked for a few years, saved up money, developed a portfolio, and was admitted to the National Academy of Design in New York, which was a big deal in those days. And he started making paintings right away, or he was a bit of a geographical wanderer first? <laughs> no, he started making paintings right away. And his first paintings were very traditional. They were very much the kind of art that everybody was making, you know, figurative stuff, still lives, some portraits the occasional landscape, but they were very good. So, you know, he spent several years at the Academy and in the process won almost all of the prizes that they had to offer. So the Hallgarten Prize, the Cannon Prize, several others. So he was a shining student. He was an absolute star. He was working with a distinguished painter named Charles Hawthorne, who really believed in Johnson. So about the time he was to graduate, Johnson did not win the traveling prize, but of course he wanted to go to Europe the way everybody else wanted to go to Europe. And so Hawthorne raised money to send Johnson abroad for a year. Johnson, having always lived on a shoestring budget, managed to turn that year's worth of funding into three years in France. He traveled around France, Germany, the Netherlands, went to North Africa, spent a little bit of time in Denmark. Then after three years, he came home for a bit stopped in New York on his way, went back to Florence, and then went back to Europe. It turns out he had met a lady friend. So the two of them were married in Denmark and lived there for almost another decade. This exhibition is a clear demonstration of Johnson's mature style. He's painting um, flat. He's, he's painting almost acompositionally. He's filling pretty much every corner of the rectangle. When does that style emerge, and who and what do you think informed it? Well, he was in Scandinavia. He did these sort of brilliant expressionist, mostly landscapes, but also portraitures. They were really ecstatic paintings. I guess if there is a comparison that people are familiar with, some of the landscapes probably parallel Van Gogh's Starry, Starry Night, you know, those brilliant swirling brushstrokes and that sort of thing. But he made a dramatic change in style and in subject matter when he came back to the United States. Threw off all this sort of ecstatic international both style and content and determined to paint black life in America. So he immediately flattened out everything he did. The figures in the in the paintings that he did when he first came back, which was sort of love the 
the confluence. He arrived here on Thanksgiving Day in 1938, he and his wife. So, but he was immediately jumped into the New York art scene and he started painting these paintings that almost looked like cut out figures attached to some sort of a background. He was painting sharecroppers in the South. He was painting hipsters in New York. So there's some very funny paintings. One of my favorite shows a couple seated at a bistro table and he's looking straight out at us. She is looking directly at him. And underneath the table, you have to sort of parse out whose legs are his, which legs are hers, and which legs are table legs. It's as though she has got this man in this grip. So it's a very funny picture, but also a very elegant one. And as a really as a modernist painting, nobody else is working that way at this point. So they're very bold statements. And I would say almost everything, there are only one or two exceptions, almost everything he painted after he returned to the States in 38 was focused on black subject matter. But then he did these sharecroppers and he did the, you know, the, the Southern, they're really Southern sort of folk scenes. And the, the paintings have sort of a folksy quality to them, except that when you look at them for a little while, you, re- you realize that there is nothing, absolutely nothing accidental in the way they're composed. The forms are are really brilliantly conceived. So he did those things initially after he got back. And then as he moved farther into the 1940s, he did what I think is one of his most touching and beautiful series on African-American soldiers training for war and African-American nurses performing Red Cross kinds of responsibilities. One of their, and these many of these are watercolors with such a delicate touch. Knitting for the soldiers, for example. A young man waving goodbye to his family who stand in front of kind of a ramshackle building with train tracks running down the side of the picture. So he's very sensitized to life experience for the people who are undergoing the same kind of hardships, and in some cases, much more severe hardships as the rest of their countrymen during the first several years of World War II. He also did paintings that were based on gospels and spiritual music. Some of the paintings are are directly biblical. There's a lamentation, there's a descent from the cross. One of my favorites is called Swing Low, Sweet Chariot. And it shows this, this figure on one side of a river a river across, sort of semi-diagonally across the middle of the painting. And on the other side are the angels who are going to take him across the river. Well, the angels are dressed in, you know, contemporary, then contemporary dresses that have these wonderful feathery purple wings that come out of their backs, and they all wear Bobby Socks and Mary Jane shoes. So you too could be an angel if you had Bobby Socks and Mary Jane shoes. But it's it's a painting with an encoded meaning, because as was the music as, and the lyrics, because it's not just Swing Low, Sweet Chariot. It has to do with the Underground Railroad and crossing not the River Jordan, but the Ohio River as fugitives move from the south as they, they're making their journey toward safety farther north. So there is... There is so much in his paintings. And then his last body of work, a group of paintings that he called the Fighters for Freedom. Some of them have been seen occasionally, but mostly 
they haven't been seen as a group since they were shown in, well, as a group in this country, since they were shown in New York in 1946. Let me set them up for just a moment. So Fighters for Freedom, of course, is what's on view at the Gibbs and what will be on view at Sam in the fall and what will be touring the country for years to come. <laughs> the fall of 23. Yeah. Oh, I'm sorry. Yes, fall of 23. So why, why does Johnson turn to the theme of freedom fighters or fighters for freedom? And does it have anything to do with World War II and perhaps nearly the end of World War II? He started painting them probably in 1944. Only a couple are actually specifically dated. I think it probably had something to do with World War II. I think maybe it had more to do with this really huge effort to claim and reclaim the history of African-American individuals and life that had started back, oh, certainly in the 20s, when his sort of compatriots and colleagues, people like Aaron Douglas and Hale Woodruff and a number of other artists were doing murals, many of them, but not all of them, for historic black colleges or universities. Anyway, they're a brilliant series of, of paintings. So he is not the only one who is thinking about this. But he found a very, a very unique, non-narrative, essentially, way to feature people who he thought had made a huge difference in the struggle for freedom and overcoming oppression, segregation, and often much worse, as they, they found a way to struggle through and end up making a world, the world a better place, particularly for its African-American citizens. The earliest history, if you will, that Johnson addresses in the series is really the beginning of what will become the American nation, a painting of Crispus Attucks. Who is Attucks, and how does Johnson construct his picture of him to both refer to well-understood standard pictorial presentations of American history and also to update those? Well, Crispus Attucks was the first person who was killed in the run-up to the Revolutionary War. So he becomes incredibly symbolic within the African-American community, a confrontation between what turns out probably to have been a, a group of dock workers and British soldiers, and you know, guns were fired, and Attucks was killed. Johnson doesn't present that way in the painting. He shows... On the left, there are British soldiers. On the right, some women in colonial clothing, you know, long dresses and hats and that sort of thing. And splayed between them on the ground is a black man, Crispus Attucks, who obviously has been shot. I think it's Johnson's way of telling us, because he really is telling us something with all of these paintings, of telling us that the contributions of African-Americans, including giving their lives, dates back to before the American Revolution. So this is not a new history, and it's not a, it's not a history that we're only just understanding or discovering, but it's something that is inherent in our democracy, what would become the American, the American enterprise. Johnson, of course, presents Crispus Attucks as a non-white person and, and borrows his composition from Henry Pelham who was, of course, John Singleton Copley's half-brother and who in 1770 engraved the 
mega famous propaganda poster, The Fruits of Arbitrary Power or the Bloody Massacre, which Paul Revere then copied. What's fascinating about Johnson's painting isn't just that it's kind of pictorially and, and, and gripping and has, has a gripping narrative, but he's very much riffing on the Pelham. I mean, he's pointing right at the Pelham and because in the Pelham, the Attucks figure is, is, is portrayed as white. Attucks is effectively starting his series and certainly is starting American history with a black martyr. Yes, and the way he's he's splayed, you know, arms wide, he's splayed Attucks in the center of the painting. He looks, if not quite crucified, he certainly has that pose. And he's lying beneath the sunset. I mean, here's Johnson, who has just spent many years in Europe, and, and that metaphor comes into American art because painters picked up on John Milton. And so here's Johnson layering many histories and metaphors and time periods, if you will, on top of each other in just a magnificent picture. It really, it really is. And it's among the fighters for freedom, it's actually one of the simpler compositions. There are fewer, many fewer figures, many fewer elements in it. But because of that, it's, you know, its power is in its directness. One of the really interesting things about the Fighters for Freedom series for me when you see them hung across galleries, and I should, I should note the, the installation, this is the rare example of, <laughs> of what I'm taping with a curator after I've had an opportunity to see a show. Usually we tape these before a show is installed. What's really interesting about the installation is that the works are necessarily glazed because of the delicacy of the works themselves. They're behind non-glare plexi, and they're all framed exactly the same way, behind the exact same frame, which really allows the composition and the construction of each picture to, to come forward. And one of the things I really saw seeing them all installed is that one of Johnson's accomplishments in this series, Crispus Attucks notwithstanding, is that he's dissolving genres across pretty much every picture. So there's portraiture, there's history and landscape, typically all different genres. Here, they're in single paintings. Is that a metaphor for how he's trying to dissolve and represent America's history? Because if you're going to revise the history, why not dissolve the conventions of, of art? <laughs> the conventions of art and the conventions of history painting as well. I think so. And he has a lot to say with these paintings, but the paintings are not particularly big. So, I mean, how do you... How do you show Crispus Attucks or maybe even better, a Harriet Tubman or a George Washington Carver and have people know who actually is in the painting, short of reading the label? Well, you give them attributes. I mean, attribute portraits was something that Arthur Dove and a number of other modernists, particularly modernists, were doing in the second decade of the 20th century. And then, you know, the practice dies out to some degree. But Johnson really brings it back so that there is, he can say a lot through these little emblematic vignettes that just a single vignette can stand for a whole experience, series of events, an Eiffel Tower in a painting. For example, uh, there's an Eiffel Tower in his painting of Marian Anderson. But it tells you universes about who this Mar woman, Marianne Anderson, is. She performed in Paris to great acclaim. She was an international opera singer. So 
He fills his paintings with a whole array of symbols and attributes that tell you things, in many cases, that you probably did not know. I mean, I have, I have a trivia question here. How many people know that George Washington Carver, whom we, of course, know was, you know, an agronomist, scientist, world-renowned, very distinguished, had patents to his name, had, you know, he had a, an incredibly distinguished career. But did you know that he started out as a painter and his paintings were actually shown at the 1893 World's Columbian Exposition in Chicago? We have two paintings of George Washington Carver, and they both show a painting in it of flowers. Well, there's a photograph of Carver with his painting at the World's Fair. And, you know, the paintings, Johnson's little emblem resembles the painting that Carver showed. He sneaks up on us in some ways by not only telling us and showing us parts of the history that we that we probably know, but all sorts of things that if we ever knew, we've forgotten and more likely had never come across before. And, and he builds these paintings by moving our eye from object to object in a way that tells a story. So you mentioned the Eiffel Tower in, in the Marian Anderson picture. Right next to the Eiffel Tower is Marian Anderson standing with Eleanor Roosevelt. And you get to Eleanor Roosevelt and you kind of follow the form of Eleanor, it's slightly triangular form and that, and that, you know, uh, prompts your eye to move down toward the bottom of the picture. Well, the thing right below Eleanor Roosevelt is the White House. <laughs> and, and then just kind of as the eye moves around the picture, we get to flags, flags of countries in which Anderson had performed. I mean, this strikes me as a fairly sophisticated and, and super modernist way of, of telling a biographical story in painted form. I think you're right. And in many of the paintings, you know, the Marian Anderson, what you mostly see is the triumph. But in a number of them, you see some sort of an element. There is a Liberty Bell, for example, above Marian Anderson's head. She had performed in Philadelphia. But you don't see really any indication that she was denied the opportunity to sing at Constitution Hall by the Daughters of the American Revolution because she was black and because the plan was for her to sing to us to an integrated audience, which they did not permit. They owned the place. So you don't there is a lot of a lot of a lot that's embedded into each of these little vignettes too that I mean one of the things that I found is, you know, the more I saw the more I wanted to find out what each of these little things means. Oh, absolutely. Across every painting in the whole show. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> you know, so so why is there a Liberty Bell with Marian Anderson? Well, you start looking into her biography and history and and her performance records and because because she had she had performed there. The same is true of so many of the other paintings. You know, I learned a lot, for example, about Haitian history in in tracing all of the elements in the Toussaint Louverture painting. Which is a great example of the merging of a landscape into a history painting, into an action painting, into a portrait. <laughs> it is. It's all there. <laughs> it has all of the above. I mean, all the checkbox, all the checkboxes can be ticked in, in that painting. And you also begin to see in these paintings something about, you know, really, as you look at them as a group, 
some larger sort of larger ideas that were important to to Johnson and I think by extension important period. A number of the paintings show educators. Certainly George Washington Carver was an educator as well as a scientist. Booker T. Washington, there are two Booker T. Washington paintings. He was a major educator who raised huge amounts of money and did so very creatively. When he was invited to to establish a school at what, at Tuskegee, he he got there and discovered that there was money to pay teachers, but there were no buildings. There were no furnishings. You know, there were no desks or chairs or even rooms where students could come and enroll and sit and learn. So being a very enterprising man, he borrowed some money locally. Well, first of all, the school met in a church hall and then had initially, again, a handful of students. And so he figured that if the students were going to have an, a good place to be, they needed to have a hand in it. So he put them to work building the buildings and building the furniture, the furnishings, borrowed $1,500, bought some land, and really within a decade, it was a fully functioning college that stressed initially stressed vocational arts. So, you know, building furnitures, furniture and buildings was part of the curriculum, if you will. Very Black Mountain. I mean, it was a totally do-it-yourself proposition at the beginning. And then liberal arts became a key part of the program as well. So he, he understood, but he understood, Johnson understood, that education was absolutely fundamental if the situation, particularly of Southern African Americans, were going to be able to find a way to support themselves create their own situations and move forward with their lives in a way that they had agency and choice. Another of the, don't know if I would say passages, but another focus of Johnson's that remains pretty constant across a lot of the paintings is the way he paints hands. He, he loves painting hands as a way of pointing to uh, achievement or, or accomplishment. One of my favorite pictures in the whole series, and maybe the handsiest <laughs> painting in the entire series, is a picture of John Brown, Frederick Douglass, and Abraham Lincoln standing together astride farms uh, in the lower half of the painting and cotton fields in the upper half of the painting. It's pretty great that John Brown's hair is blue and Frederick Douglass's is green, but leaving that aside for the moment, what is going on with everybody's hands in this picture? And maybe does it remind you of that couple at the bistro table we talked about earlier? Actually, that's a good comparison. I hadn't thought about it before. It does. One of the things that I think is really key to what Johnson's saying with that painting is that Frederick Douglass is the guy in the middle. He is the sort of towering figure who anchors the composition. And He's bringing John Brown's hands and Abraham Lincoln's hands together. And I think it was, oh, maybe partly historical, but, but also a political statement because Lincoln had not condemned slavery before the Emancipation Proclamation took effect. He kept trying to find a way to keep the Southern states in the Union. And so at one point he was, in fact, willing to allow them to continue to practice slavery, while you know John Brown, on the other hand, is raiding Harper's Ferry and doing all sorts of other sort of totally maverick and 
to some degree violent things. And Frederick Douglass is the guy who brings them together. And he is the man who really who finds the way to make what they're what they both believe a reality philosophically. And not just between Brown and Lincoln, but between the cotton fields and the top half of the painting and the and the small farms and the bottom half. And it's really the other thing about hands in this painting that I think is really interesting is that when it comes to the black men and women working in the fields, which is happening behind the three leaders, we can't see a lot of their hands, although we can tell that their arms are, you know, hoeing ground and whatnot. But in the lower left hand of the painting, we have hands the size of John Brown's face expressing joy. Another uh, sunset in this painting, by the way, (laughs) another moment of transition. Um, Johnson did not miss a trick. Everything in these paintings is intentional. Yeah, there is so much intentionality. In there, I mean, no such thing as happy accidents in Johnson's Fighters for Freedom. And he did a huge amount of research to make sure that that these implicit narratives were documented. So he spent who knows how much time at the 135th Street branch of the New York Public Library. You know, which is now the Schomburg Center in Harlem. And he did a huge amount of research there. I am glad you brought that up because this leads to something I was wondering about. So we talked earlier about how Johnson is making these paintings in 44, 45, right about there. It actually even dates to 46 because one of the vignettes in it, the boxer's painting. Oh, right. There's an image there that he took directly from a, a, a news photograph that wasn't published until, I don't know, late summer, fall of 1946. So these are, as you, as you noted, obviously researched, carefully planned, historically planned scenes, 44, 45, 46, which is to say Johnson is making these works a whole decade before Jacob Lawrence will also go to the Schomburg, what is now the Schomburg Center, and research his struggle series. Do we know if what Johnson did in these pictures informed Lawrence's project? And I guess not just Lawrence's paintings, which are also flat modernist pictures, but but the research element. Possibly, but Lawrence was had already done the migration series before Johnson started the Fighters for Freedom. But they were working in the same milieu. And Lawrence did a Harriet Tubman series. So I you know I haven't ever seen any documentation particularly to suggest how well they might have known each other. I can't imagine that they didn't. But Lawrence was something like 17 years younger than Johnson. So generationally, they were they were a little bit different. And Johnson was, you know, he had this international perspective because he'd spent close to a decade abroad. So you're noting that in European constructs of history painting, you know, like think Maisonnier in France, um, it was quite common for painters to do a lot of research in Europe for their history paintings. Yes. And I think Johnson also wanted to get it right. I think that was very important to him, that the histories that he alludes to in all of these paintings, based in fact. Except, except of course, John Brown, Frederick Douglass, and Abraham Lincoln were never in a room together. But other Well, <laughs> right. But the idea... Yeah. yeah, no. The, 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 the idea the is based sort of in philosophical here. fact, if you will. Yeah, no, they absolutely are. And, and actually, there are times where he's quite 
specific, in fact. You know, he, he does make a, a portrait of Abraham Lincoln standing alone, not, you know, apart from Douglas and Brown. And he includes hyper-specific elements from the hanging of the conspirators who assassinated Lincoln. I, I, I think that that image has fallen out of the American imagination. But of course, the hanging of the conspirators was photographed and those photographs and engravings after them were widely disseminated. And Johnson knew that and carries them forward here. And actually, on that painting, Tyler, one of the things that I'm fascinated with is the Red Cross in the lower on the lower left side of the painting. It's in both the Lincoln paintings in the show. Yeah. Yeah. And because I can't help but wonder if that's not a nod to Clara Barton, who started out, you know, nursing wounded soldiers, you know, reading letters for them, writing letters for them here in Washington, because she had been a copyist at the Patent Office building, which, through a lovely coincidence, is the building where our museum is located. So she was actually working in there uh, when the building served as a hospital during the Civil War. But then she was quite an amazing woman. She initially got permission through the military people and ultimately from Lincoln to go to the battlefields and to minister and provide you know, medical aid and supplies while the men were, were still, before they'd been wounded men, before they had been removed from, from the battlefield. It was quite something. It was a major change in the way hospitals worked, the way women worked at this point in time. And of course, you know, as ultimately the founder of the American Red Cross, she had, she left a huge legacy. And I, I, you know, and I just wonder if that Red Cross doesn't, doesn't acknowledge her role, even though there is no picture of her. There is within the series, a remarkable, like totally remarkable painting of Josephine Baker. So, you know, this one, as the others will have, will have on manpodcast.com. I don't know how to describe it except to say that Baker is dancing all over the place. I mean, like mini Bakers are dancing <laughs> all over the place. And that Johnson has used Baker's form and dancing as a way to build a just spectacularly clever composition. Baker, in some ways, uh, falls a little bit outside all of the other freedom figures he's painting in that she came to prominence and lived in Europe. Do they know each other? I have no documentation that indicates that they knew each other, but she was such a presence in in France and throughout Europe when Johnson was there that I can't imagine that he didn't see her perform. Yeah, because you could almost not paint this painting if you hadn't seen her act. Right. And, you know, she, Catherine Dunham, they also did something that was transformational in the field of dance. And that is that they they introduced African and Caribbean dance forms to American to American dance. So, you know, it's not just Josephine doing what she did brilliantly. She's also doing something that speaks to history and heritage and diaspora. And it's fun to watch. It's fun to watch Josephine Baker on YouTube. <laughs> I I. Hadn't, I've never done that. I will have to dial it up well, tonight. Well, I highly recommend it. I mean, one <laughs> of the things that, you can do, that we can do now is that we can go to YouTube and we can hear Marian Anderson singing. We can hear Paul and see Paul Robeson singing. Because each of the people that that he selected, particularly the 
people in the world of, of sort of pop culture and entertainment, they moved the bar. They weren't just terrific at what they did. They also moved the bar in making statements about African-American culture and in some cases connections with Africa. Johnson knew Alain Locke and, you know, who had written The New Negro in what came out in 1925, I think. And he'd met Langston Hughes. Langston Hughes actually owned one of Johnson's paintings. So Johnson is very, he's, he's a very sophisticated thinker in terms of the whole New Negro movement, the Harlem Renaissance movement, which is, you know, really happening exactly at the time that he's in New York in the 1920s. Two more things. Johnson's series doesn't include only black Americans and figures like Lincoln and Brown who were adored by black Americans. It includes like a really surprising and striking range of global leaders and global figures contemporary to Johnson's time. I mean, World War II is a big deal, obviously, but is but but why was it was it simply that the war was all encompassing, or were there other reasons that Johnson might have expanded the grouping, if you will? Well, I think it's because he saw the figure world leaders during the war, you know, Churchill, Roosevelt, Chiang Kai-shek, Stalin to a lesser degree, perhaps, but they were in a position, presumably, to affect peace to reduce the kinds of controversy. He also did paintings, a painting of Nehru and Gandhi, who were throwing off colonial rule in India. He did a painting of Ibn bin Saud. And actually, one of the things that I thought was really interesting is he did a painting that he calls FDR and the UN. Well, this is FDR died in April, I guess, before the United Nations Charter was signed in June. But it had been such an important issue for Roosevelt that he'd been he'd been working on this, moving up to in, in these various various meetings that he had abroad with world leaders, that the culmination of the United Nations designed to bring peace to the world, Roosevelt is the central figure. But right behind Roosevelt is another of Johnson's little vignettes that shows him shaking hands with Ralph Bunch, who was a diplomat and a major a major figure in the formation of the UN, bringing you know these what 50, 50 plus countries together to actually do something as impossible as to sign an agreement that they would all participate in. So I think Johnson's Johnson's sense of the international is not only in the United States, it's worldwide. So he's thinking about people who are oppressed, people who have been marginalized economically, racially, socially, around the world. And his so he's finding fighters who have worked on their behalf and have sacrificed, struggled sometimes, and often triumphed. But their cause was in some ways a single cause. And that was the the equality of human beings across the globe. The other very funny thing about the FDR and the UN picture is that Johnson puts Winston Churchill in the brightest canary yellow suit you've ever seen. He does. And, he does. And it's just absolutely, it's just such a send up. It's great. So 
Johnson makes these paintings in, you know, pretty much 44, 45, 46. And what does he do or not do next and why not? Well, he showed them in New York in 1946 in conjunction with, I think it was National Negro Achievement Day. So they were on view in New York and he was given an award. And then by this time, his he'd had a fire in his studio, but the real tragedy for him was that his wife had died in 1944 of breast cancer. And he was, he was, it really, losing Holka really set him adrift. But he was also suffering from basically a brain disease. And so he was in some ways losing his faculties. So what he did was in 1947, he went back to Europe. He went back to Scandinavia. I think, you know, hoping to revisit, retrieve some of the happiness that he had enjoyed, he and Holka had enjoyed when they lived there. There was a a show of the Fighters for Freedom paintings there, but then he was, he lost his capabilities, lost his capacity. And so he was basically sent back to the United States and hospitalized at Central Islip State Hospital on Long Island, where he lived for the rest of his life. So this is from really from 1947 until he died in 1970, and he didn't paint anymore. One of the things that is one of those sort of tragic twists of irony is that at one point after we had done an exhibition at the museum of Johnson's work, a few months later, a man showed up, knocked on the office door and came in and said, I sort of knew Johnson. He was very sick at that point. This man had been an orderly at the hospital where Johnson was confined. And he said Johnson kept telling them that he was a very famous painter. And the people in the hospital thought he was delusional. And so didn't make any effort to provide, you know, pencil, paper, paint. So it makes you wonder. And it makes you think twice before you ignore biographical, autobiographical information that people tell you, which very well could be true. So if Johnson did any work at the hospital, it has not survived. Well, this shows certainly testimony that, that, that Johnson knew what he was, because it's, it's pretty terrific. Virginia Mecklenburg, thanks very much. Thank you. Explore the first U.S. Museum retrospective of the pioneering artist Harry Bertoia, at the Nasher Sculpture Center. See more than 100 works of sculpture, design, and jewelry that influenced culture, both at the mid-century and now. In complement to the exhibition, don't miss an installation from pioneering sound artist Olivia Block, which utilizes Bertoia's sound sculptures. Learn more and get your tickets at nashersculpturecenter.org. On view at the Getty Center Museum through May 8th, the lively new exhibition Poussin and the Dance brings together 17th century painting and contemporary dance. Nicolas Poussin was the most influential French painter of his time, and an artist fascinated by dance. Portraying dancing nymphs and satyrs, he drew inspiration from ancient Greek and Roman sculpture and envisioned dramatic, even violent, action with a choreographer's eye. This exhibition juxtaposes Poussin's dancing pictures with three original dance films by L.A.-based choreographers that explore the structure and subject matter of his paintings and challenge his position of cultural authority. Plan your visit and book free advance reservations today at getty.edu. The Nasher Museum of Art at Duke University in Durham, North Carolina, presents a survey of contemporary art from around the state. The exhibition, Reckoning and Resilience, North Carolina Art Now, 
brings together 30 emerging and established artists. This group survey, featuring approximately 100 works, presents an expansive view of contemporary art in North Carolina, both in terms of regional geography and artistic approaches. The show includes drawing, painting, sculpture, photography, ceramics, textiles, performance, and experimental video. The artists explore themes surrounding historical and current events, identity, loss, remembrance, trauma, and healing. All works are on view at the Nasher for the first time. Visit nasher.duke.edu. Welcome back. Next up, Elizabeth Alexander, that's the artist, not the poet and foundation executive, joins me to discuss her work on the occasion of Reckoning and Resilience, North Carolina Art Now at the Nasher Museum of Art at Duke University. The exhibition features over 100 works by 30 artists working across North Carolina. Alexander's sculptures and installations are often made from deconstructed domestic materials and address America's history, especially the construction and memory of white supremacy. She's been included in exhibitions at the North Carolina Museum of Art in Raleigh and the Museum of Art and Design in New York. Museums such as the Crystal Bridges Museum of American Art and the Mint Museum hold her work in their collections. Elizabeth Alexander, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. I think a foundational place to start, given the thrust of much of your practice, is with domesticity. What about domesticity interests you, not just as a subject, but really as kind of a whole point of address? I started with working with domestic objects, partly because I didn't have a lot of money and it was something I could easily get secondhand, partly because I was studying a lot of intersectional feminism as a student and wanted to communicate elements of the female experience in a way that illustrated it without always having the figure in my work. And I grew up working class and our home was kind of the center of our world. My dad has a a steel fabrication business. And so we could never really stray too far from where his shop was. So we really kind of made our home everything. And my parents spent, you know, they were really young and didn't have a lot of money. And so they used the resourcefulness they had knowing how to make things you know, upcycling and getting hand-me-downs or building their own furniture. We had a lot of steel tables and railings and things in the house. So I think there's also a kind of deep set interest in my relationship with objects and kind of learning how I relate with objects through watching my parents kind of take something and change it into something else. And there's a sort of sense of a possibility in anything around you when you grow up like that. So it's a kind of combination of the symbolic meaning of those things, but also it's sort of how I learned how to be around and among objects. And so I think I was just kind of naturally drawn to a lot of domestic elements. You know, my mom sewed all of the curtains in the house and she recently gave me a few that they had from when I grew up from the you know 80s and early 90s. And I found that the color scheme and a lot of the print are very similar to what I gravitate towards when I'm shopping. And so there are subconscious things that show up a lot when you're an artist kind of working and and making and seeking out material. One way you've addressed domesticity is with your 
choice of objects, the, 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 the forms and indeed objects themselves, really, that the work takes. We're going to get to what you do to some of those objects in a moment. But before that, why do household objects like commemorative plates or porcelain interest you? I think objects have a lot of potency and the way that we live in our homes, shop for our homes, arrange our homes, whether we are finding things and changing them or finding new things and, you know, redecorating, which, you know, there's a a huge industry behind that. That speaks so much to value and how we value ourselves, how we value each other. You know, they're all kind of silent signifiers of, of things that we're interested in, things that we find valuable and what we want to project about ourselves out into the world because our homes are private spaces, but not really, you know, they're, I think this time has kind of shown us how interconnected we all are and how the outer world kind of seeps into private life quite a lot. So I'm interested in seeking out objects that are kind of passive in domestic space, but have this kind of silent signal of, of American kind of value system. And for women, a lot of that is projected back onto us. And so I was thinking about for porcelain where, you know, you think about when you get married, you're supposed to, you know, at one point you were supposed to choose your, your China pattern that was, you know, said a lot about you and your, your status so I was looking for things to take apart, but thinking a lot about those symbols of status within that. And, and really memory's power in forming American polity has been a subject that historians have examined over the last 20 years. Uh, David Blight's great book, Race and Reunion, Carolyn Janney's uh, Remembering the Civil War, are, are, you know, have, among others, have pointed out how memories of one specific American past, in the case of those two historians, the Civil War, carries forward today. Oh, by the way, speaking of the Civil War, the Nasher is showing your A Mightier Work is Ahead. I think that if I were to describe it as being plates, that would be inadequate. So like the plates that the work is rooted in, what is the best way to describe what they are and what they show or showed? So... That piece comes from a larger body of work where I have come across Confederate commemorative plates and decided almost immediately when I found them, because it was almost like a serendipitous moment, if if you can describe coming across Confederate plates as serendipity. But I, I was trying to process what was going on with, I felt like there was this countrywide culture shock with the surge of Confederate pride and all of these, these what we would have thought of as fringe groups kind of showcasing a lot of their allegiance to white supremacy and like all these permission, all this permission for those values was kind of happening, even though they weren't really new, it was visible and so then, it, you know, the visibility made it shocking. And so I wanted to make work about that and then went shopping in a secondhand store, which is where I find a lot of my materials and found a full set of Confederate commemorative plates. And the first set was was made by the White House of the Confederacy. And I feel like that set has maybe a more specific charge than 
the ones at the at the National Museum where I don't know the history of, of the ones at the National Museum to the same degree, but that series is called Jackson and Lee, Legends in Gray. They were made by the Danbury Mint Company and they're illustrative plates of illustrations of a painter named Mort Kunstler. And they have a 23 karat gold trim and they're a limited edition series. So there's all these elements that kind of signal this this collectability and preciousness and rarity that these objects have. So after I found that first set, I kind of just had my antenna up that there are even Confederate commemorative plates in the world. So I keep kind of discovering them. And this series at the at the Nasher I, I discovered on eBay and have been kind of over time just collecting more and more. Well, speaking of David Blight's race and reunion thesis, the Danbury Mint is in Norwalk, Connecticut. It's a northern company. It's just across Long Island Sound from like Sagamore Hill or or Huntington, New York. So one of the things or a thing you do with those plates is you use deletion or elimination as a strategy. How do you do that and why? So it has evolved from my practice. I mean, I think I, and honestly, I don't know what is so satisfying about removing material, any material, you know, I kind of single out a print and will extract it from whatever I'm working on. I think just watching those elements change and I have this, there's this sort of power in removing or catharsis in removing things. But I originally was cutting, using a hand tool to cut flowers out of porcelainware and as I was doing that, I noticed how much that object changed from something utilitarian. There's a print that you're ignoring and the void that is created through the removal makes it much more delicate and kind of highlights the loss of something that's within there. And then, you know, again, talking about value, it shifts sort of maybe the way that you might value those objects, even though I can find them in a consignment shop for a couple dollars. So when I found the the Confederate plates in that shop, it felt like a call to action. It was like, I, I already do this process removing material and the the extraction of the, the deliberate extraction of symbols of the Confederacy, symbols of the generals and the war and the flags, the battle flag have a lot more charge, I think, than taking a flower out of a teacup. But I did something a little bit different with this series where I actually chose to keep the elements that I took out. So, you know, typically I'll kind of cut something out and then just maybe keep it in a box and I still don't know what I want to do with them or throw away the bit that I took out. But with these, I deliberately actually ground everything down to dust and then sifted the dust out of, I have to cut everything in a water bath to keep the temperature even. And so I sift that dust out and that is displayed below each plate. And so I feel like I'm kind of using that process to point to the fact that, you know, whether or not these things are present, that this is still, you know, the debris and the dust is still, and the residue is still all over the American landscape. It's shaped the American landscape, you know, all of the history of the war and even of the slave trade and the farming and all the things that have kind of led up to the Civil War 
that is all embedded in our landscape. And so I wanted them not to be completely removed and forgotten. I wanted there to still be a little bit of an evidence of what was there, but grinding it down to dust kind of takes the, the power out of the, the object or the symbol that I'm taking out. And then I also deliberately left the American landscape around the voids that I'm removing to also show that that happened, these things happened here, that you know, this is very much an American reality. Oh, by the way, what you are leaving in the place of, of your removals is whiteness. That is incidental or at the core of the whole thing? I honestly haven't thought that. I, I guess that my reaction tells you that it's incidental, but, <laughs> you know, I've always thought about it like the, it's the material of the porcelain, but it is a strike, striking white, especially on the, the plates at the National Museum are a much more boldly printed imagery and it's edge to edge. So I actually couldn't cut everything all the way out. So that was my problem solving for how to remove things without completely obliterating the structure of the plate. But that's something I'll have to process. It's, I don't know if I can completely answer that. Although I am talking about the pervasive white supremacy that exists in objects like this. So it's not a far-fetched read. It's, it's right there. You know, the other thing I think about in this work and in other work in which you have this is such an art-speak way of putting it, but foregrounded removal, you know, in, in works like The Great Enemy of Truth, you know, these are works from which you are deleting or eliminating things. And the question of the deletion and elimination of American history is primary across the country right now as the right wing, the Trumpist right wing, attempts and quite often succeeds at removing the teaching of American history from public schools. You started doing all this. You started making this deletion or removal-oriented work before that? I did, but not, I think, with the same specificity and charge of this series. It was almost like I have this visual language of removing material, and it's something I can use on purpose to communicate a set of values that I felt a, a deep sense of urgency to talk about. I, I didn't think of the deletion or the removal or extraction in the same way, I think, before I found those plates to work with. No, I think that's all right. But I, you know, I think that's all true. I don't mean to question that. But, but I think that as the cultural and political moment has headed in a certain just bizarre, frankly, direction... It, it, it's not like that the, the moment has moved toward your work, but it has moved toward an address that your work is running in parallel to. Yeah, something interesting that I've learned is that my great-grandmother actually used to say often that when she was in school in the late 1800s and early 1900s, that the Civil War was be, still being fought in school. And... I am certain that these arguments have been around and there's just more of a platform for them currently. This rejection of history being told the way it is and that there's multiple ways of interpreting something and, you know, that changing even the the story behind removing monuments and that it's about removing history. But if you actually look at when the monuments were put up, it was all during Jim Crow. And 
you know, there was this concerted effort for intimidation and also reframing the narrative of the Civil War during the Jim Crow era. And I think these plates are a byproduct of that. I think these plates plate in the great enemy of truth, that set that I came across had an archival box for every single plate and a card, an information card. And if you read the information card, you know, it, it tells you how rare and important the plates are, but it also tells you a little bit about the scene depicted in, in the, each plate. And war is very seldom referenced. Battles are referenced. Slavery doesn't come up once. So there's definitely like, I mean, what is more passive than a plate? It's, it's these objects that are like Trojan horses, you know, manufactured in order to change that narrative and to packaged in a way that you'd want, you know, you're made to want to pass it down to future generations and hang in your house. And, you know, it does kind of neutralize a lot of the war elements and it's a lot about glory and it's the removal of ideology. Yeah, it is. And so, you know, I think by, by my removing it, I'm actually kind of putting it back. Think not kinda. (laughs) I mean, I think totally, which actually leads into the next thing I wanted to ask you about perfectly. Cause you know, we've been talking about works in which you take things away but other of your works take things that feel like the past, like history, or, or, or at least feel old-timey, like wallpaper, and build out from it or, or add to it in ways that suggest the past is alive and still growing, you know, which is a neat thing to play with. So taking a work like Let Him Speak First from a couple years ago that was recently on view, in fact, as we're taping this, it still is on view at the North Carolina Museum of Art, but by the time this airs, it will not be or traditional Victorian rose. We'll have images of both of these on manpodcast.com. What are some of the ways in which you remake the past in ways that are generative? I think a lot of my motivation for those pieces is, so for Let Him Speak First, the title cuts into the prettiness of the piece. It's a very lovely piece. It's made out of extracted wallpaper flowers and so it's this concentration of print and it makes a kind of area rug and a few chandeliers and they're all made out of paper and they're all made out of the wallpaper and they're all kind of coated with that wallpaper pattern and so I wanted a title to kind of undermine the prettiness of it to talk about the patriarchal or cultural issues within domestic space, whether they're unconscious or conscious, that do still exist in our culture and that inform so many things. You know, the fact that we're still debating whether or not women have agency over their own bodies is absurd. And so I'm definitely calling a lot to those ideologies. I'm using that work to lure you in almost like it's like candy, you know, so it's very luscious or lush. And, it, you know, I use flowers or fl- printed flowers to kind of create almost garden like scenes. And I'm deliberately making objects of desire. So like these, you know, this area rug and these chandeliers, but they're all fake. So they're all made out of paper. They're made out of cast paper coated with this material and they have the kind of dark underpinning. So I think of that a lot 
speaking about if you're, you know, there's a lot of things that go on within domestic space that's unspoken. And we're, they're supposed to be these hyper-controlled, pleasant spaces, you know, and it's a kind of bill of goods that everyone's sold, sold especially working class people that are aiming for the American dream. You have this like very saccharine image of home and what it's supposed to be. And a lot of this work is talking about, you know, those things that you might feel in a space, but you don't really, you can't really put your finger on what it is. So with Let Him Speak First, the title kind of helps guide that a little bit. And, you know, for things like if a home that has someone with mental illness, you know, can there still be love? If there's like some kind of mess, can there also still be kind of joy? Or if there's some kind of archaic kind of domestic hierarchy where the man of the house has agency over everything, that it's not always evident in the space. Let's close by my attempt to attach another metaphor <laughs> to your work, I think. A lot of your work, even the work in which you are deleting scenes from plates or cutting into porcelain, embraces a certain Baroque. Even when you're taking stuff away, the works maintain a visual richness and, and quite often just a real overwhelmingness. Certainly the wall-mounted non-plates and porcelain works are are dense and rich and overlapping and seem to be growing off of the wall and into three-dimensional space because they kind of are. So this is all a long way of asking, is that in and of itself a metaphor? Is visual richness and overwhelmingness itself a metaphor for the histories you're referring to? Yeah, I think it comes a lot from studying evidence, like spaces and objects that have a, have status signals to them. So like all of, you know, those have a lushness to them. And a lot of those actually have a lot of flora and fauna. And, you know, you mentioned Baroque and even Victorian architecture detailing, you know, has those qualities of bringing nature indoors. And I've even kind of deconstructed formal gardens before and talked about that in the same way. And I think all, all of those have a signifier of status, something to aspire to luxury. I grew up in Massachusetts and we would, I grew up on the, the southern border and we, you know, we would go to the Newport mansions for school trips and, you know, looking at those interiors. And I also worked for a summer and frequented the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum and, you know, like just thinking about all those tapestries and interiors, there's something that I am just, it, maybe that's partly because of my Catholic past. Maybe that's, you know, who knows, but I'm definitely drawn to a lot of that kind of really over the top print and, and expressions of flora and fauna in design. And, you know, I also am a gardener and I, my mom is a gardener. My grandmother's a gardener. I have family that were farmers. And so I do think there's also a bit of a cellular connection to the earth and need to kind of, you know, awareness of plants and vegetation and all of those things. And so I, I think they all kind of fold together into this way that I work. 
And that wasn't necessarily in fashion when I was a student. Decorative was probably the worst thing you could be called (laughs) or your work could be called as an artist. Feminism changed that. It did. It ebbs and flows. But I think that I'm I'm glad that I held on to, you know, because I do think that was try there was an effort to kind of steer me towards something a little more stoic (laughs) i just like keep making these explosive things and can't really stop myself from doing so i've also been reading a lot about climate change and thinking about the home and it's the sort of false sense of safety that everyone has and I also have started thinking about my work almost like beautiful disasters. I'm I'm deliberately making one for a future piece. But, you know, I I do think I'm kind of harnessing a little bit more, intentionally harnessing a little bit more of that abundance that you speak of to talk about these, all these scenes that we keep seeing of like trees crashing through buildings and all the ice and in Texas, you know, all those pictures, we just get like all these images of these disasters. You know, it's a privileged position to be desensitized to them, but I'm starting to feel like we almost are. And it's it's becoming a point of entertainment almost. You know, it's these shocking images of of these domestic spaces being kind of invaded by the exterior world. And I'm starting to intentionally bring that in as well. That's a new turn for me. Elizabeth Alexander, thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. It was a pleasure. That's all for this week's show. The Modern Art Notes podcast is edited by Wilson Butterworth. Special thanks to Steve Roden, who created the sound for the program. The Modern Art Notes podcast is released under a Creative Commons license. Please visit Modern Art Notes for more information. Thanks for listening.